Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1922, Virginia Woolf began work on a novel which many now see as her masterpiece. She called it The Hours, and in her diary she gave some indication of her ambition for the book. I want to give life and death, sanity and insanity, she wrote. I want to criticise the social system and to show it at work at its most intense. It was under a different title that the book eventually saw the light of day three years later. It's named after its central character, Mrs Dalloway, a wealthy woman at the heart of 1920s London society and charts a single day in her life as she prepares to host a party. It's a richly inventive novel which deals sensitively with mental illness and the scars of the First World War and 90 years after it was published, Mrs Dalloway is now seen as one of the most original and innovative products of literary modernism. With me to discuss Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs Dalloway, are Professor Dame Hermione Lee, President of Wolfson College, Oxford, Jane Goldman, Reader in English Literature at the University of Glasgow, and Catherine Simpson, Senior Lecturer in English Literature at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Hermione Lee, can you give us the salient features of Virginia Woolf's life up yes. to the time she wrote Mrs Dalloway? She was, she was 40 when she started it. Um, she'd been married for 10 years to Leonard Woolf. She'd had a traumatic pre-war life on the whole. She'd lost her mother at 13, she lost her father at 22, she lost one of her brothers at 24. Um, She'd had a number of serious breakdowns in her teens and soon after uh, her marriage she'd attempted suicide in 1913. She'd been very ill during most of the war Um, and she also had a whole range of symptoms in, in in the year she started work on Mrs Dalloway. She'd been diagnosed with a heart murmur and she thought she might not have long uh, to live. Um, She'd been writing reviews, essays, stories, novels. Really, she'd been writing since she was a child, but she didn't publish her first novel uh, until she was 33. Um, I think there are two other salient facts running up to the novel. One is that in 1917, she and Leonard Wolfe started their own printing press, their own publishing house, the Hogarth Press, which allowed them to publish her Uh, rather than her having to go to another publisher. Um, And the other thing is that in 1924, um, they moved back from Richmond, where they'd been living, into central London, into Bloomsbury, in fact, into uh, Tavistock Square. And I think those are all key factors in, in the background to the novel. Can you tell us how her literary style had developed up to the time she wrote Mrs Dalloway? Yes, she she'd written t- um, three novels. She wrote two turn-of-the-century novels, 1915, 1919, The Voyage Out and Night and Day, which are really um, sort of of end-of-19th-century novels about... Each of them really is about a young woman struggling against... um, trying to create a life which isn't like the life she's being told to live. And you can see that the novelist also is sort of fighting against what she sees as the conventions of the novel, rather in the way her young girls are, are, are kicking against the wall of, of, of convention. Um, then uh, in the late 1910s, um, early 1920s, she was writing pieces about fiction and about how she thought that modern, she didn't talk about modernism, but modern fiction 
ought to change, needed to change, in order to deal with the sort of radically changing conditions of, of early 20th century life, not just the war, but psychoanalysis and the theory of relativity and all kinds of new ways of thinking about And the uh, Roger Fries exhibition. And all that, post, absolutely, post-impressionism. In that then the world, yeah. was it the world changed? Or in Caris- December 1910, the, the world changed, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, so, and she's thinking all the time about how can the novel deal with human character differently? And then she starts writing little short pieces, which are very painterly, actually. Her sister was a painter, almost like pointillism or impressionism, very fine-grained little pieces um, like Kew Gardens and the Mark on the Wall, trying to pinpoint the perception of a moment or a place. And out of that comes a novel called Jacob's Room, a very remarkable novel, which is a kind of war novel uh, uh, in 1922, um, uh, which tries to write the biography of a young man who's been killed in the war, but not as not as a solid wedge of, of facts, through fragments and bits and pieces. And all that process leads into the writing of Mrs Dalloway. There's one wonderful manuscript note at the top of the, uh, one of the pages of the manuscript, Mrs Dalloway, where she says... A delicious idea comes to me that I will write anything I want to write. So she's looking for more freedom, I think. That's at the beginning of the second draft, when she's written yeah, that's the right. second draft. Mm. So she's written the first draft, but she's finally she's looked at it on. and moved on there. Mm. And so maybe that's the moment to change her world. Catherine Simpson, can you give us a brief overview of the novel and its main events? I can. Um, as you've already mentioned, it's a novel set on a single day in June in 1923 and was called The Hours. In many ways, it's a special day. Um, It's the day of Clarissa Dalloway's party, but it's also an ordinary day. And Wolfe gives us snapshots of London streets and parks where we see a cross-section of ordinary people just going about their daily uh, business. Um, The focus on the richness and importance of the everyday, I think, is something that resonates throughout Wolfe's writing. And we're certainly made alert to um, sensation and the the qualities of being alive um, throughout Mrs Dalloway. The plot is very minimal. Wolf was moving away from realist conventions, um, which very much um, were formed around plots and, and were very much plot-driven. And in terms of summarising the novel, it's probably best to think about the different groups of characters. Um, Clarissa is an upper-class woman who will host a party... For Clarissa in, Dalloway. Clarissa Dalloway, that's right, um, who will host a party for influential guests, including the Prime Minister. On that day. On that very day. She leaves the house to get the flowers for the party in the evening. Absolutely, right. that's right. So she heads out into the city to buy the flowers. And in some ways, that's, that purchase is really a pretext to go walking. <laughs> um, her husband also goes out to his office and later has lunch. Um, but when Clarissa returns from her shopping trip, she's visited by an old friend and would-be suitor, Peter Walsh, who's just returned from India. Following this meeting, Peter also wanders the streets of London. He pursues a woman, he dozes in Regent's Park and finally goes to Clarissa's party. In fact, at the party, there is another reunion. Um, Clarissa's other old friend and would-be lover, Sally Seaton, turns up on spec. Clarissa's daughter Elizabeth also goes out on a city adventure. She goes to the army and navy stores with her tutor Doris Kilman um, and takes an omnibus up the Strand and really has another city adventure. The but final, we've got to go to Septimus. The final set, <laughs> set of the people. He's the big one. I mean, this is the thing. There's Clarissa Dalloway yes. and the Septimus and the others in between of great importance, but not as important as okay. Septimus. Right. Well, and tell us about Septimus, yes, his I, day. I will. The final group then consists of war veteran Septimus Warren Smith and his Italian wife, Rizia. They also go out into the city. They're walking the streets. They're spending time in Regent's Park as they're waiting for their Harley Street uh, consultation with Sir William Bradshaw. Finally, um, everybody appears at, Wolf's, at Clarissa's party 
apart from Septimus, um, but the news of his suicide reaches Clarissa at her party and she reflects on her own choices in life. So Septimus takes his own life. Now, can you describe... So these are the two things. She goes out, he is tormented by what they called then shell shock. His wife is trying to save him. He eventually commits suicide in between various other people, and a a great number of other people, interwoven in the novel, especially into her life. Uh, Past life and the present life, memory is very powerful as well as the present, and they merge one of the features of the novel. Is there a structure you can tell us about briefly about Mrs. Dalloway? Yeah, well, what you've just said there is really important to the structure. Although we don't have a a clear linear plot that will drive the narrative along, we do have all these moments of near misses, if you like. They're walking in the streets, they're they're crossing paths, but they're never quite meeting. But Wolf has built into her novel... um, Lots of different connections, and that works in quite subtle ways. The, the chiming of Big Ben, for example, is a kind of aural reminder all the way through, and we see the different characters and what they're doing at the different hours of the day, and that forms a, a really key structuring technique. But the novel's also like a montage. It's like a cinematic text in lots of ways. We have lots of jumps between the different yes. experiences, and Wolf was very influenced by the cinema and by that um, kind of technique. But the language of the novel is also key in creating a sense of coherence because we have lots of kind of repetitions of phrases and image patterns. We have allusions to Shakespeare and references to to repeated things like flowers and barking dogs and so on. So there isn't a linear structure, but there is a coherence. There is an interconnection. I asked the question about structure to be sort of formal about it, but it's sort of a, a day in the life is one of the great structures, isn't it? Absolutely. A day in the life of a penny. Was that Dickens who said that? Anyway, yeah. a day in the life yeah. of a penny. So you've got the idea, it's a day in the life. We all yes. know about day yeah. in the life. That's yeah. a structure of our most lively, isn't it? Yeah. And right, Jane Goldman, uh, the phrase stream of consciousness has sometimes been applied to Virginia Woolf, and it's around at the time. How much does it apply to her in Mrs Dalloway? Well, I think it it doesn't at all, really. She writes a more unhinging kind of narrative than stream of consciousness. And a lot of people talk about stream of consciousness when they actually mean free indirect discourse. Uh, the most famous example of free of uh, stream of consciousness is Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of Ulysses, which of course is a is considered a kind of um, text that Wolfe is in dialogue with for Mrs. Dalloway, you know, set it one day in, in Dublin. So stream of consciousness is is what Wolfe calls being trapped in a very bright room in the luminous halo of one person's inner life. But Wolfe's narratives actually switch between exterior and interior. So if I may just read you the opening lines of the, the novel, then then tell me whether you think you're in first person or third person. No, you tell me, but read them first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. For Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges... Rumpelmeyer's men were coming, and then thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge, for so it had always seemed, and then the door's hinges open again. So this, I would call this a kind of, there's there's an armature of free and direct discourse, which is the ability of of, uh, the sentence to move between third person outside view and first-person interior. But there's a kind of empty centre to the sentence which you as the reader have to negotiate. So Mrs Dalloway is reading you as much as you're reading Mrs Dalloway. And, you know, for example, when it says... uh, 
Mrs Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, who's, who is speaking those words? And the famous critic uh, Eric Auerbach asked this of Virginia Woolf's novel To the Lighthouse. Who is speaking in this paragraph? And if you ask yourself that all the time... Um, the answers are surprising. It took me years to think that perhaps uh, Lucy is having this thought, that it's being focalised through Lucy, the servant who's only given a first name. And Mrs Dalloway um, is not the kind of author of those thoughts at all. Can I, can I rather crudely bring you back to a broad brushstroke? The, yes. The, we're four years after the end of the First World War when this novel is set, and the war is uh, hanging over the novel very densely. Yes. yes. Could you comment on that? Well, the war is apparent in everything in this text, uh, not just in the obvious uh, moments where, uh, for example, Peter is walking past the cenotaph, or Miss Kilman, the German tutor, is looking at the tomb of the unknown warrior. And then, of course, Septimus, who is this uh, war veteran who's deeply shocked and traumatised by remembering the death of his, his friend and officer Evans. Um, but all sorts of words and images take you into the war, even when you think you're nowhere near it. For example, when Septimus uh, sees the trees coming alive and sees his friend Evans coming out from the trees, this is uh, related not only to, to his kind of psychotic state, but it's a kind of satire, it's a comment on the fact that at the time uh, there, was a, there was a public uh, campaign to plant trees in memorial to the war dead. So that, uh, and then the word leaves, you know, vanished like leaves that's talked about the, the war dead. Uh, every time you see a leaf in the tree, it's taking you to Dante, to Virgil, to this kind of um, accretion of imagery that comes from epic war poetry from classic times um, right up up to the present. So shop signs, street signs. I, for example, when Mr Scrope Purvis notices how nice Mrs Dalloway looks right at the beginning, if you go away and research the name Scrope Purvis, you discover who did Wolf know who was called Purvis? Nobody in her personal acquaintance, but Purvis is the name of a great arms dealer who made a huge amount of money out of the Nobel um, uh Explosives Company for the First World War. So, so he was, he, you know, so these names will detonate. Yes. So in the heart of... Also, can I just add... No, I want to move oh. on now. Uh, uh, Hermione, can you tell us a bit more about Mrs Dalloway? Uh, is she, and also, sorry to compound the question, but is she, is she, does she speak in the voice of Virginia Woolf sometimes? Because this is often... Thought to be the case. It was certainly in the hours. Um, but let's talk about Mrs. Dalloway. What I about just, Mrs. Dalloway? I just thought, picking up from, from, from what's been said, and this is relevant, this extraordinary structure whereby this woman seems to connect with all these other people in the book, whom, some of whom she hasn't met, like Septimus, and the fact that you don't know whether you're inside someone's head or you're in the third person, these are linked, actually. Mm. You know, that she doesn't want to write... Yes, she doesn't want to write autobiographically. She's very, very keen not to write about herself, and it's one of the key features. So she, like all novelists, she splits herself in the book into all different characters, so there's bits of her everywhere. So this is not an autobiographical novel at all, even though it's got an extraordinary rendering of, of what she experienced in, in mental illness. So her relation to 
Clarissa Dalloway, um, is very complicated, actually. So it's partly she takes bits from hostesses she has known, because Clarissa is a kind of famous hostess. So Otlene Morell, or a woman called Kitty Max, who she thought was a bit glittering and tinselly, and she was worried that Clarissa would come out that way. Um, she take, There's something about the, about the death of Catherine Mansfield in there, who died in 1923, who had very strong influence on her, and this... this woman whom she's interested in who who dies you know young uh, that's there um her own feelings about women are in there her her sexual feelings for women her rather perhaps chilly possibly rather frigid sexual marriage to leonard which is nevertheless very companionable that's in there in clarissa's relationship with richard who's always telling her to have a rest after lunch and you know but she sleeps on her own in a little attic room. So there are bits of other people, there's bits of herself, um, uh, but in class terms, she's not a bit like Clarissa. Clarissa was a right-wing, rather ignorant um, politician's wife who's going to have this rather boring prime minister who's sort of skit on Stanley Baldwin uh, to her party. This is very remote from the world of Virginia Woolf, which is actually, you know, upper-class, professional, intellectual, artistic. It's not... Posh. Yeah, the Bloomsbury group, who are not actually terribly wealthy and they're not very posh and they certainly don't read the right-wing Morning Post and all of that. So in some ways, Clarissa's very unlike her, but the ways I think in in which there's a deep resemblance um, is in this... It's hard to put it without sounding ponderous, but a sort of rejection of tyranny, which has to do with the way that mental illness is being treated, but it also has to do with um, the British Empire, uh, the the the, the behaviour of the upper classes, um, um, uh, the British colonies. Clarissa is... She's in her class, but she's sort of oddly alien to it. And she doesn't like tyranny. She doesn't like people to bully her. And she doesn't want to define people too closely. And I think in that sense, she's kind of an autobiographical portrait, mentally, if you like. And one thing I found when I was reading it this time, after a long is she's quite spectacularly and almost um, wonderfully self-centred. Clarissa. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when somebody dies, kills themselves, yeah, how her. could they spoil her party? <laughs> by How could people talk about you? Yeah, all right. It's how could people talk right. about it at her party? Yeah. Uh, how could bring yeah. the talk into but her then party? She, says it opens she opens out it up herself. later, but her yeah. first reaction yeah. is like, and she, that's what I like about the, well, the we sort of honesty of it. Yeah. I don't know whether every, everybody is all anything, but that's yeah. a different matter. But, but most people but see the world most... from themselves, and that's why this this narrative is so extraordinary. Yeah. Can I ask Catherine, yeah. what do you think is novel? I mean, Hermione has given us a huge yeah. landscape in a small thimble there. But what's novel about the way she portrays her characters, do you well, think? I think some of the things that Hermione's just been saying are absolutely pertinent to that. I mean, just going back to Clarissa's party, I mean, you're right, she is very self-centred, but she takes herself off to a private room in order to mm. reflect, and she does reflect quite critically about her own complicity in the tyrannies that, you know, are part of her society. She talks about her life being wreathed about with chatter mm. you know, she, and the, the splendour falling but to the But about the way she portrays her characters, yes. what's novel about that? I mean, we've been talking about Mrs Dalloway. Yeah. Is there a way that she draws a character? You could say Dickens draws a character very often by exaggeration, hyperbole Absolutely. and so on. Is there a way yeah. that you can say Virginia Woolf 
describes her character. Yes, well, I think, again, she's she's very clearly moving away from a realist tradition where characters are narrated from an, an external perspective, where we're told about their hair colour, their status, we're told the material details. What we get in Wolf is a, a preoccupation with the inner life, and that's why it's so fluid, that's why it's so contradictory, because she was very alert to the fact that we are constantly shifting and changing. Our moods, our emotions, our thoughts are in constant flux. And, in fact, in one of her essays called Modern Fiction, where she's really setting out her own modernist manifesto. She talks about wanting to record the atoms as they fall on the mind. She wants that immediacy, that that sensory perception, but that ever-shifting nature. And I think that's why it's quite difficult to think about characters as characters in this novel, because really they're kind of centres of consciousness. You can see why she was so besotted with the Impressionists, can't you? Mm, Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Yes. Can I ask you, Jane Goldman, t- about time in Mrs. Dalloway? It was originally called The Hours. Big Ben keeps striking. Clocks are all over the place. Right. OK, well, it it was um, originally conceived in 12 sections and they survive mm-hmm. in the first British edition. There are no chapter headings, mm-hmm. but if you look very carefully, you'll notice occasionally a, a space in the text and sort of the space on the page is very important to Wolfe. Yes. Um, and write, the actual physicality of writing is very important so that these selves are clearly produced in language. Um, the sky writing plane that may or may not be spelling out toffee or, or an advert or the, or the wonderful... Uh, lyric singer, the the violet seller who is singing these nonsense words, syllabing Eum farm. So, <laughs> what about time? Well, these take you back to different kinds of time. The aeroplane writing takes you into modernity, and the Eum farm so lyrics take you to what we would call archaeo modernism. Yeah, but isn't time more to do with the, the way that she and her. Well, there's it, prehistoric time. Yeah, I know about that. Sorry to be rude. But, yeah, the thing you know is that about this. It, but, well, no, no, I don't know. I'm just trying to get, get it clear. Do you, do you want ta- me to talk about ta- Bergson? No, no. Won't you, I just want to. I, I, I probably formulated the question clumsily. It seems to me that the fact that it is one day, mm-hmm. the fact that this party is going there, the fact that yes. Septimus is, go- is is in a state which is which he is is waiting to kill himself. These are time driven in a very important yes, way. Yes, but it's not so it's unity not what I really of time. Like to talk about. Yes, so it's not unity of time in the classical tragedy sense where the action of the novel. Uh, is coterminous with the the action of the day. It's showing how time, according to Bergson, who is very influential on modernist writing, uh, but she didn't is, read it. Yes, she did know about Bergson through uh, Jane Harrison, who okay. she read very carefully. Okay. And Jane Harrison's work refers the classical scholar refers to Bergson's work very carefully. And she also attended a lecture on Bergson in about 1913. So she was very au fait with with Bergson's theory of time. Uh, and there's this spatial time, and there's something Bergson calls la durée. And spatial time is the material spatial world, mm-hmm. clock time, Greenwich time, railway time. Yeah. And that's the time that is being uh, put under scrutiny by Wolfe, the calendar time. Uh, and then there's durée the uh, subjective non-spatial time, the time of the interior, which understands that when we open the doors in London, in Westminster, we're simultaneously opening onto 
our past when we opened a door in Borton in in the countryside. Don't you think that's the that's the thing? I mean, whether or not she knew Bergson, you know, herself, he was sort of in the air. But don't you think the the extraordinary thing about time is you've got this beating measurement yes. of yes. hours and minutes, and we all know that sense of time pressure. And yes. then it it sort of stops and pauses, and you go into what she calls these deep pools yeah. under my characters, yeah. where time doesn't actually seem to be of the essence, and yeah. it's all about memory. And so there's yeah. a kind that's of it's almost like a squeezy box, yeah. you know, it opens out yeah. and then exactly, compresses yeah. back. It's we know that from remarkable. ourselves, don't we? There are yeah. different, there are massive but it's an amazing sorts. thing to have done yeah. in a novel. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, it's relatively yeah. radical and new to try and get that feeling. What, exactly, what precisely is radical about it? But to, to, have a, to have what you've been emphasising, which is the day in the life, yeah. to have that very gridded structure, very formal structure, and within that, to use a very sort of flexible sentence to open that out and yeah. stop it in its tracks yeah. and then go back in. Yeah. And it's as if time dilates, isn't it? It's, it there is yeah. a sense of suspense mm. and pause, exactly. but it's as if time opens up, it dilates. And I think what's really key for me about time in this novel is the way that we occupy an impure presence. We yes. are in the present moment, but as you say, that's mm. influenced, shaped, coloured by our past and by past mm. experience. And I think right at the very beginning of the novel, we've got these hinges. We've got the, mm. the door hinges being taken off, which will open out the room for the party. But that hinge, that word hinge, acts as a trigger, and it's a hinge between Clarissa's mm. present moment and this rich past that she returns to time and That's again. Very and that that yeah. hinge as well, it's the semicolon. Wolf was the mistress of the semicolon <laughs> in a sentence. Yes. So that, that lovely sentence, the doors would be taken off their hinges, yeah. semicolon, Rumpelmeyer's men were coming. Now, can I just tell you about Rumpelmeyer's men? Because <laughs> Rumpelmeyer's men were caterers in London yes. for for the um, high society, and therefore one would expect them to be uh, catering for a party entertaining the Prime Minister. However, at the same time as they clearly signal uh, London and high society, we know that Wolfe was taking ices with her lesbian friend, Hope Miralees, the poet, in Paris at another place also called Rumpelmeyer's. So that, and she also met Jeed's translator, Dorothy Boussy, at Rumpelmeyer's in Paris. So can you see how this is a portal? This sentence is a portal and it's asking you, are you going to be at the party with the warmongering prime minister uh, pouring him a drink? Or are you going to be taking... Um, ices with with sapphic bohemians in in Paris, uh, and the other side of the the sentence, the doors would be taken off their hinges, is clearly a reference to Walt Whitman, Obi when he says, um, "Unscrew the locks from the doors." unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. And we know Wolfe was reading Whitman at the time and that uh, there are other references to Whitman in the text. So she's there's a kind of apocalyptic, poetic mm. uh, entrance portal mm. into another and, possible time. And is it about being unhinged? It is about yeah. being unhinged, and yeah. It'll unhinge you. Maybe being about a threshold as well, standing oh. on the threshold of a doorway. Yeah. Yeah. So Mrs Dalloway yeah. has choices, yes, doesn't she? She, she does. doesn't have to be this warmongering society hostess. She could have fallen in love with Sally Seaton. Um, she was know, in love with Sally Seaton. Well, she's, yeah. <laughs> she's and not gone off. Mm. Ah. I'm going to move to class yeah. because okay. it's full of it. 1920s, social distinction, very acute. Hermione. 
Well, you quoted earlier on, I think, a uh, line in when she's working on the book, when she says, I want to criticise the social system and show it at work at its most intense. So you've got the whole stratum, actually. You've got, uh, you've got the posh chaps in their clubs. You've got royalty going through the town in its closed car. Um, you've got uh, grand upper-class ladies who are so idiotic they can barely write a letter to the Times. And what they want to write a letter to the Times about is how good it would be to solve the population problem the overpopulation in Britain and the underpopulation in Canada by sending lots of healthy, uh, eugenically tested people out to go and live in Canada. So you've got all that. You've got rich consultants making, you know, making money out of uh, out of their patients. Um, you've mm. got the whole system of the establishment and the whole party-going world where money is being spent. You have, the, you have classes, uh, class in Little Cherry, which is snobbery, which is around the place. Um, well, you've, there's a problem with the book, which is that she goes right down through uh, the social layers to the self-educated clerk who becomes a war veteran to the tramp woman selling violets in the street. And she gets she's got into a lot of trouble for that because there are some sort of eye-rollingly tactless ways of rendering Cockney speak. And, you know, there's a, there's a notorious sentence which I'm very fond of where she says, the mothers of Pimlico gave suck to their young. <laughs> yes. And she gets into trouble for that. But actually... It's problematic yeah. because she's not just being a terrible snob, though there's a bit of that. She's, she's trying hard uh, to look at the whole structure of society. And she is also writing about snobbery. Um, and Clarissa herself is very much at odds with her own uh, posh world. Mm. And if this isn't pushing it a bit, the whole structure of the novel that... that Catherine's been talking about, the, the way that it moves across this network of, of people and voices is sort of in itself democratic, actually. Mm. I mean, it's mm. trying to break down. The very fact you can have this sort of almost telepathic relationship between this posh society mm. right-wing hostess and this poor, wrecked clerk yeah. is, is a kind of class-crossing. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to be brief for the next two or three questions because I want to get on to Septimus. But, Jane Goldman, can you briefly tell us what connections there were with books around at the time? I'm calling them both books, Ulysses and The Wasteland, the poem, the great Eliot poem. Were, were they feeding into her? Yes, definitely. Uh, she's, she, For example, the um, flower seller whose who's song is described as issuing from a rude mouth uh, it's also, she's also referred to as a rusty pump. Well, I think that's a, a reference to the Hades section of Ulysses, so the rusty pump is, is an yeah, image from Ulysses. Generally speaking, had she read uh, these two? Did yes, she yes, she was, going, she was asked to publish Ulysses, yes. and she certainly was one of the first champions of it in modern fiction, her essay, uh, in which she, she explains what she thinks... Uh, is is good and what's not so good about Joyce's narrative technique. Very mixed feelings. Um, and also Septimus, you can see uh, that Septimus is is called a, a, at one point a drowned sailor, and there are huge numbers of references to the kind of Dante-esque London scape of the wasteland, Eliot's wasteland, mm. which of course. Wolf set in type herself mm. for the Hogarth Press, and also 
Eliot came round to Leonard and Virginia Woolf's house and intoned the poem to them. So she heard it read out loud by Eliot before it was even published. So she knew it deeply. And it's her kind of response to that kind of idea of a failed elegy. What's the the significance, Catherine Simpson, about the big shopping expedition, the sort of aerial view of a particular part of the West End of London, Regent Street, Bond Street... All that sort of yeah. stuff. Well, I think shopping in the novel is incredibly interesting. You know, this is known yeah, but what as... what about that particular expedition of hers? The, you mean Clarissa's yeah. walk through yeah. the, the different streets? To, for the flowers. Well, I, I think one of the things the novel's doing is mapping a transition from a kind of elitist kind of shopping experience. You know, Clarissa buys her flowers in a posh florist on Bond Street. But what we get also in the novel is obviously that stunt, the aeroplane stunt of the writing in the sky. Mm. Um, so we get this real sense of... Of a, a process of transition, um, so we get um, Clarissa, as we might expect, walking walking the streets in a quite sedate way, absorbing um, sensations and, and getting quite a lot of pleasure from from her shopping trip. Um, but we're also aware that that shopping in the novel isn't just about buying things. Um, shopping is, in lots of ways, a, a pretext for the surfacing of other. Desires. My... I was just saying the city is so glamorous and yes, fetching. Yes. But it's also a kind of cold place because you're constantly walking past people who are in deep trouble. Yes. So you might be going out to buy your flowers. There's someone going mad on the bench next Can to you. Can we talk about Septimus yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's about time, isn't it? Um, <laughs> she said she wanted to write about sanity and insanity. Mm-hmm. And Septimus is in a state which, which, let's not call it insanity, but is in, let's just say, use deep trouble. He is, is shell shock. We, we, we know because of the death of his friend, he is tormented. He's Italian wife who's a wonderfully sympathetic mm. character he's just trying to be with him and by being with him save him uh, and can you say more than that please Armani I think she's doing uh, several things with Septimus and I think they're all extraordinarily brave she's mm. partly trying to write in coherent uh, and vivid and imaginative prose the incoherent experience of what it feels like to be if you want to name it bipolar or, you know, many of her own symptoms of hallucinations um, uh, and feeling that messages are being sent to you, these sort of strange and terrible feelings are, and, and feeling them worthless and being unable to feel normally. All those things she tries to put into Septimus and she purposely does it, I think, into a character that's as least like her as possible so she won't be seen to be writing about herself. It's a very brave uh, and very troubling piece of writing all the way through. I think the second thing, you mentioned Rizia, his wife, and I think that's extraordinary. She's not just writing about what it's like to feel unhinged, she's writing about what it's like to look after that person. Yeah. That is a terrible, yeah, terrible yeah. thing and I think that's one of the most brilliant things in the book actually. Mm. Uh, and then the so other do thing, I. I mean, she with yeah. about four strokes, she gets so, doesn't Absolutely she? wonderful. Yeah. And the other thing I think is about the official treatment of mental illness. And mm-hmm. here she she gets very polemical, uh, mm. very fierce, and almost knocks out the novel by the force of her agitation about this, which yeah. is the, the the GP who's completely hopeless and says, "Oh, go out and play golf, you know, uh, get some fresh air." And and the consultant who Bradshaw. Put it, Bradshaw mm. wants to put him in a home, give him the rest treatment, separate him from his family. These were all treatments that were thought to be acceptable uh, for mental illness at the time, but she sees them as forms of tyranny and control, mm. and it's quite clear that there's an agenda in this novel about how mental patients are and how people in mm. distress are, are although treated. she doesn't 
put uh, 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 that sort of stress on Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway's mind is fragmenting again and again. She's yeah. having a real mm. right the way through. You you mentioned the word accordion, Constantina, before. Mm. It's quite like that, isn't it? It's, she pulls and she pulls herself yeah, yeah. together. Again, so pulls there's herself, an affinity she's, she's between this extreme breakdown and the and the un- instability of Mrs. Dalloway's relationship to the real world around her, which we yeah. see so vividly. Can we? Can you introduce us to the sexuality in the novel, Catherine? Yeah, well, um, we might expect that the novel would be a a tale of marital bliss, you know, given the title and so on. (laughs) Um, But obviously there is um, an ongoing dilemma for Clarissa. Is she going to marry, or or, she contemplates her choice to marry Richard Dalloway? But we're also aware that her choice as an 18-year-old was never that straightforward. She was also very much in love with Sally Seaton and aware that... that kiss which turned the world upside down. the kiss that turned the world upside down, absolutely. And that's the most exquisite moment... That she goes back to time and time and again, and I think Wolf is doing lots of things here. I think she also the recurrence of Sally comes to the party uninvited. Yes. Absolutely, she comes yeah. on spec. And she her, just and her, her main changed. topic of conversation is I have five sons. That's right, <laughs> but she also brings a radiance to the party. When you look at, at the detail, you know when Sally enters the room, there's a radiance there. So although Sally has aged and doesn't have quite the allure that she used to have, <laughs> there is still some connection. There's still something powerful. But I think Wolf in introducing kind of homo desires and, and the homosexual experience is really talking about again a critique of the social system that constrains people, that limits people. She creates these very fluid characters and this idea of a more fluid sexuality is key to that really. This is a treacherous digression and maybe if it doesn't work out pull back <laughs> but given that Ian Foster was terrified of his life out of publishing yes, yes. Morris at the time yes. uh, um, she's Bowling away with, with yeah. lesbianism in her yeah. book, and was there a, a, a was there any voice raised? Yes, you're raising your hand, so there may have been a voice raised. Well, we now know that that uh, Wolf's later work, um, Orlando, was on the censor's desk, but yeah. but managed to escape yeah. censorship yeah, in 1928 yeah. when D. H. Lawrence's uh, novel was was banned for obscenity, and then uh, the Well of Loneliness yeah. was banned for obscenity yeah. because merely the two women for saying spent the night together. Yeah, yeah. that did night not, they didn't did, part. They were not part. Yeah. And yet, like Wolf before, can yeah. describe. Yeah. Uh, this fantastic orgasm that Sa- yeah. Sally Seaton gives yeah. her, and she remembers all her life, and yeah. uh, gets away with yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, actually, to 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 describe two women yeah. kissing, yeah. if you were to imp- uh, impose those standards yeah. uh, of nineteen twenty eight, how did she get away with it? Well, but, you tell us. I mean, how did she get away with it? Am I? Do you know how she got away with it? Free and direct discourse. <laughs> I think Encoding. people maybe missed it. I think people didn't. You know, I mean, it's not like. Uh, the Rainbow or Women in Love or Ulysses, you know. There's no shocking language. Uh, there are no, there's no graphic sexuality. It's highly dressed up in, um, in metaphor, that the, 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 the kiss that, you know. I mean, if, you, if you're a censor and you say, you come to a censor who says it was like a match burning in a crocus, you're probably not going to think, oh, we better not have that. You know, it might shock the British public and corrupt the young, you know. So it's actually quite dressed up. But, but I also think that... that- that moment of the kiss is immediately halted. Peter Walsh interrupts them. You know, yeah. he says, "Are you s- a man comes <laughs> in?" And you know, the, the novel describes it as something shocking, something horrific. But at the surface of the narrative, that that moment has been halted. I mean, it hasn't because it has this rich afterlife. Um, and I think it's, I think that idea of encoding. I think that's how but she did she get away with it. She also explicitly says in another 
turn of the dice. Yeah. She could have loved Miss Kilman, yeah. who's this kind of stage Absolutely. lesbian who, who yeah. seems to be uh, reviled in, in the novel. Um, but the, the, I think the most radical thing she does is to show how uh, compulsory heterosexuality is aligned with uh, the class system, yeah. with imperialism, yeah. and this kind of gender alignment is, is deeply connected to these big ideological questions of you know young men sacrificing Absolutely. their lives for the war. Yeah. And at one point, uh, Septimus is described as having gone to war for Shakespeare and Miss Isabel Pole in a green dress, who has inducted him into uh, pastoral poetry and, and Shakespeare as a way of, you know, just as young men did mm. go to war with Palgrave's golden treasury in their back pocket. And were volunteers and, for the first two and a half years yes, of the war. Yeah. Yes. So the power of language, poetic language to... Mm. But to in, kill people, But in terms basically. of sexuality also, I do think that what's going on in this book and in others of her novels is this need for space and freedom within sexual relations. There's a, yes. the, the, the reunion when her old lover, Peter, who she didn't marry because he would have always been at her all So he the time. went to India and got married he unsuccessfully. Went to India and, she yes. stayed in London and got married unsuccessfully. And he comes back and thinks, there she is, still yeah. having her parties, you know. But he, he was the person she didn't marry because he, he would always been at her and bothering her sexually, emotionally, whereas Richard gives her space. But what, what she loves about him, and they're sitting in the room as he's fingering his phallic penknife when she's mending her dress, <laughs> and they're talking, and, sh and there's, there's this phrase which says, they went in and out of each other's minds without any effort. Mm. And it's, the mo it's one of those magical moments in the novel where this is what sexual f knowledge of, you know, freedom, intimacy, that's what it should be like, a kind of free... Thoughtful. Is there a sense intercourse? in which the prose itself is sort of sexually ecstatic on a lot of occasions? Yes, yeah. yes I think it comes to climaxes on Brackley every page. There's yeah. also the case, <laughs> can you remember when, when Septimus is in the park yeah. and uh, he's, he's having this uh, apocalyptic vision of when dogs will become men? Well, a Sky Terrier is busy making love to his ankle just at that moment. <laughs> I so, didn't notice that. Yeah, well, you should go oh, back and look. You can't read it often enough, can you, really? <laughs> you can't. But it's to do with that sense of reconciling animality and and reason, you know, and yeah. if you disavow your animality and your sexuality, yeah. then all these horrific things will follow. OK. Uh, we haven't got much time. What What's the most important thing you haven't said? What's the most important thing I haven't said? Hermione. What it is that she's doing that, that goes on into her later work and has a huge influence, I think, uh, is not only all the things we've been talking about in terms of time and space and moving in and out of people's minds, but also the simple fact that she chooses a very unremarkable woman. She chooses a rather, you know, everyday day in this woman's life. She goes inside uh, the life of, of this woman in relation to all these other people we've been talking about. And she does it again, actually, in the next novel, which is more of a family novel uh, to the, the lighthouse. lighthouse. Mm. And I think this thing of putting the emphasis on what has might have been thought of as very unremarkable and not worth writing a novel about mm -hmm. has an enormous effect on other writers after her. And I think is now we take it for granted. Th at that time, I think it's yeah. very, very revolutionary. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much. I'm sure there's another five programmes there. And over the space of time, we may return to do another five programmes. Catherine, Catherine Simpson, Amanda Lee, Jane Goldman. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll talk, be talking about the signs of the sun. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
She's writing about dogs. Are you? I was really. I. I mean, it was. I was a bit, bit rushed because there's so much to say, and you were all so capable. Sorry about the beginning. I, you didn't let me finish my sentence. You're all so capable of doing it yourselves that I thought I'd better try to share it around a bit. I've lost two... No, I haven't. I put them in my pocket. I've got them. Tall. I've got a pocket full of paper clips. One, I mean, it's my knife. Can I talk about similes and metaphors in, in Mrs. Dalloway? Because Please do. It's so wonderful, the way the narrative... And she does this... I mean, she perfects it, I think, in The Waves, where she introduces... This wonderful simile, you know, that the morning is fresh as if issued to children on a beach. So immediately we're all thinking of the childhood beach we were issued with. But it's funny when you read but, her now, because you, because in some ways she seems, you know, it's, it's, it's decades ago, this book. And yeah. what I find difficult is to think myself back into what it would be like reading it. Well, uh, yeah, but in the 1920s. Can I just finish about the but, simile, though? But these similes are very formal in a way. Yeah, they but then what she does is she says, as if issued to children on a beach. So you know that there's a reality which is London on a certain morning and you know that the, the figure of speech is mm. the, the children being issued a, a morning on the, on the beach. And then suddenly <laughs> it goes, what a lark, what a plunge. And then it's the flap of a wave. And suddenly we're in opaid a metaphor. And suddenly we don't know whether this is figurative or, or realistic ground. And it's completely taken you, you, the ground mm. from under you. Mm. As she sort of moves into inhabiting what you were talking about, these tropes, these mm. figures mm. that you travel through the novel. Yeah. And absolutely. And I think that idea of metaphor itself is really key because what a metaphor does is compares one thing with something else. But what's important is what's in between. Yes. It's not the two entities. It's what yes. goes on in between. And I think that it's is... It's the hinges again. It's the hinges, but it's... you know. <laughs> What Wolf is doing in this novel all the time, she's thinking about the in-between. When she's drawing characters, it's not the individuals themselves, yes. it's the connections between them, the relations between them. When yes. she's thinking about different events, it's not the discrete events themselves, it's how they connect. Can I ask you, do you remember when you first read it and what it felt like when you first read it? Yeah, I, I, I was at Oxford, mm. and, when, uh, and I got it in the Oxfam shop, uh, the paperback, and you didn't I just, get it on your curriculum. Uh, no, no, no. I read yeah. history, oh, uh, right. and uh, I just gulped it down. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. Just like, oh. And what was the bit that got you? I liked the prose. Yeah, mm. yeah. The prose I just, is the I just felt, oof, mm. I'm yeah. surfing. I just yeah. loved it. Mm. Couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I was mm. sort of almost hooked. On and was literary. that the first one? Was that your fir first uh, Virginia? Wolf I think it was. I'm pretty yeah. sure it was. Yeah, yeah let's it? say it was. I can't yeah. remember. And is it? And it's your favourite then? Oh yes. Oh yeah. That's why you chose it. That's why I chose it. We, we Usually you're off a tea and coffee, but you're not being offered it this right. morning because we have a VIP coming, oh, yeah. and I can say this because Tom can always chop it off. Tom usually comes in saying tea or coffee and cheers us all up instead of saying we have to go quickly because the, the menacing men of security are moving in to allow Hillary Clinton to go on to the woman's hour. Oh. <laughs> exactly so. Thank you very much. <laughs> there are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.